you would take out the Word of God and turn to 1 Peter. We continue our sermon series through the book of 1 Peter. We're going to be looking at uh, chapter 2, beginning in verse 4 through verse 8. And um, some of you may wonder why we take such small chunks throughout this book. And it's just so packed with uh, just rich... Uh, theology. Uh, it's packed with just the richness of the gospel. Uh, we, we say over and over, we want to be a people of the word here. And we don't say that in arrogance. We say that in desperation. Because the word of God is really all we have in this world that is sure, that is right, that will never leave us forsaken. It is the word of God. And we don't have to take other things to make the Word of God relevant to our lives. Uh, we don't have to take other things and sort of soup up the Word of God and make it more palatable. Uh, those of us who have the Spirit of God, who know Christ as our Lord and Savior, we long for the Word of God. Uh, just like we talked about last week, babies screaming to be fed. We need the Word of God. We, we want the Word of God. And I hope that's how you come every week before the preaching of the Word of God. But I want to encourage you throughout the week to open up your Bibles and read them, to be a people of the Word of God Monday through Saturday. How, whatever that means for you and your family, get in the Word of God. I, I pray that this... Christianity thing for you is not just a social event on Sunday, but it is something that is really shaping the way you think and the way you live every day. And for that to happen, you've got to be in the Word. You've got to read your Bibles. You've got to know Jesus through the Holy Scriptures. We want to be a people of the Word of God because we have to be. We have no other choice. And that's why we stand in reverence to the reading of God's perfect word in these moments. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. Hear the words of Christ to us today. Isn't it amazing that when Peter sat down to write these words, he's writing to a group of people, and yet the Holy Spirit knew you would hear them today. Isn't, doesn't that blow your mind? That in the purposes of God, as these words by the Holy Spirit are being pinned to a group of people suffering for their faith, that God knew a ragtag group of believers in a warehouse called Ashland Church would read them in these moments and apply them to our lives. Oh, would we, would we come before the Word of God in these moments in such a way? As you come to Him, a living stone... Rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in the scripture. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So it is the honor for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. 
and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Oh God, I pray that we would not be those who disobey your word. But we would be those in these moments who believe it, who cling to it, who hold to it, because it is what holds us fast in these moments. We need your word. Soften our hearts by your spirit that we may love, that we may serve, that we may worship and adore Jesus in greater ways than we've ever known in our lives, in our families, in our work, in everything we do. We would latch it all. We would tie and tether everything to Jesus who is the cornerstone, understanding it's all going to wash away without Him. Oh, would we cling to Him, the one who's clinging to us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Years before we decided, my family decided to uh, move to Richmond, we realized that we were going to have to sell our house in Lexington. And, and sort of what over, overhung our house was this constant dread of what is it going to be like to, to sell this house, to get it ready, to, to put on the market. We had grown when we moved to Lexington from a family of four to a family of eight very quickly. And we lived in a house that was 1,500 square foot, and things were getting cramped very quickly. And so we knew before we even knew we were moving here that we had to sell our house. And one of the problems with our house was the crawl space continued to fill with water. And I just sort of put it off, and somebody who lived there before us had thrown some plastic over it, and we just sort of let that problem settle, and it'll go away, and I'll think about it one day. And then we, we put the house on the market, and then I had to really think about it and figure out how are we going to get this house sold with whatever problems were, were underneath it. And I crawled back there and moved the plastic. And I, I realized that when it would rain, water would just sort of gush into the crawl space. And there were some cracks that I had to crawl up under there uh, and, and get fixed. And it, it was about two months where every night I was fixated on, on the crawl space. I would come home from work and I would crawl in there and think about what can I do next. I fixed the cracks in the foundation and then I had a friend come over and we dug out a trench on the outside where the water would run away from the house and, and we had done all that and still water was getting in and, and so I, I dug out trenches even on the inside of the house and fixed it where when water would come in it would immediately be pumped out and, and I, I spent hours and hours for about two months of my life in that crawl space and it got to a point where I was just becoming so proud of all of the work I was doing underneath that house all of this extravagant trenches and pea gravel and all this stuff that I was putting in there I was spending more money on the crawl space than the rest of the house and it got to be when people would come over for dinner I would say you got to see this crawl space You've got to see everything I've done to fix this problem in our house. And, and I would meet with the real estate agent and he would show the house and I would say, make sure they see the crawl space. And, and even after he showed the house and we found a buyer and they had the house inspected, the real estate agent came back to me and said, you're never going to believe what they talked about more than anything, the crawl space. 
They, they, they said, this is, the inspector said, this is one of the greatest crawl spaces I've ever seen. And I've inspected all kinds of houses. Now, I would dare say you're going to go home today and think about your crawl space. Probably not. Westmore, because it's his job, is probably the only one here who pulls up to a house and says, I wonder what the foundation looks like. I, I, wonder, I wonder what this, the, this crawl space in this house, I wonder if it's, if it's set up right. I wonder if water is getting in. Nobody's thinking that way as you drive through a neighborhood. You're not sitting in your kitchen eating dinner going, this crawl space, this foundation is awesome. The, the, the foundation of this house is amazing as you watch TV. You're not thinking about the foundation. You're not thinking about the undergirdings of the house. You're not thinking about what's going on there, good or bad. And yet we come to this section in 1 Peter, and Peter says when it comes to the house of God, that's all you think about is the foundation. It is from the foundation that everything else lives and breathes and moves. As he writes to a group of believers who are suffering for their faith, how do they withstand the waves? How do they withstand the wind? How do they withstand the rushing water of persecution? And he says here, you've got to latch your life to the foundation of God's plan. And he says in verse 4, as you come to him, and he's talking about Jesus. Remember last week we talked about tasting to see the Lord is good. And it is in Jesus that we have tasted the goodness of God. He has sent his son out of love to die for our sins. He has raised him up from the dead. And he promises us a kingdom where we will love and serve Jesus forever. In Jesus, we have tasted the goodness of God. And he says to the believers, as you suffer, as you endure persecution, come to him. Latch your life to him. And he describes Jesus here, a living stone. Now, in context, this stone is a foundation stone. And notice it's not an inanimate object. It is alive. And he's referring here to Jesus as this cornerstone who is back from the dead. And it is the alive, risen Lord Jesus Christ who is the centerpiece of all God's plans in the world. It, it, Jesus is the foundation of what God is doing in the world right now. And He is alive and well and at the right hand of God. And you come to Him, this risen King, who is the foundation of what God is doing. But notice, in spite of what God is doing, the living stone is rejected by men. This King raised from the dead is rejected by men. The height and climax of rejection is seen in the crucifixion. Jesus comes to his own and they reject him. They push him away. He comes in flesh and blood and he is killed in flesh and blood on the cross. But notice again, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. Notice the way he describes Jesus as the foundation block. It's not just a cold, dead block. He's alive. He's living. And he's precious. He's chosen. He's valuable. He's not just this cement piece of stone. He is a precious jewel like a diamond that, that everything is rested upon. 
He is the the diamond of God's glory that everything else is built upon. God loves him. God has made him king of the universe. He is precious. Notice you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up into a spiritual house. So he says here, as you connect to the centerpiece of God's plan, Jesus, you come alive. You're given life over sin and death. And all of a sudden, when you are connected to the centerpiece of God's plan, your life is given meaning. You become this living stone. You all of a sudden have purpose in life. You've gone from being dead in sin with no purpose, alienated from God, and yet you're connected to the one who gives you access to God, and your life has meaning and purpose. And notice the plural stones. He's referring to a community here. And then he uses the term spiritual house. Now, when you so often when we think spiritual, we think fake. We think mystical. That's not what Peter's saying. No, God is building something very real in the world. But he's doing it by his spirit. By his spirit, he is connecting these stones to the stone who is Jesus. And he is building up this house. And here there's allusions to the Old Testament temple. In the Old Testament, the temple is where the people of God had access to God. Despite their sin, they would come to the temple and animals would be sacrificed. Something had to die so they could enjoy the presence of God. And now there's a description of God building a new and better and different house, but He's doing it by His Spirit. He's granting access beyond the temple to build up another house, a better house by His Spirit. And it's what Jesus referred to as Jesus stood outside the physical temple in Jerusalem. And He stood there and, and, and he, he, the Pharisees, they walk up to Him and they say, all of a sudden you have cleaned out the temple, people were selling things in the temple, and you've pushed all these people out of the temple out of fury and rage. Who do you think you are? Well, I'm the Son of God. Well, give us a sign. And He points to this glorious temple, this beautiful temple. And He says, tear that thing down and I'll build it up in three days. And they say, who in the world can do that? It's taken us over 40 years to construct this temple. And yet we see that promise from Jesus fulfilled after being dead in the ground how many days? Three. He is raised up from the dead. And we realize when he is speaking of tearing this temple down and building it up, he was talking about himself as the temple. So God's true temple has come into the world in flesh and blood and has been destroyed. And yet he has been raised up. And what is he doing now? He is sending out his spirit and he is connecting all who would believe in him to the presence of God. The same way the priest did in the Old Testament. They would sacrifice so people could come and enjoy the presence of God. Now Jesus, back from the dead, is sending out the presence of God. And as He is doing that, He is building a spiritual house called the church. And what Peter is telling these believers is no matter the marks on your body, no matter the suffering and persecution you endure, there is no one who can tear this temple down. No, Jesus promised the gates of hell would not prevail against it. 
And notice this temple is also a people. Notice a holy priesthood. The priests were the tribe of Levi that was set apart to work in the temple. They instructed the people of God in the temple. They made offerings and sacrifice so the people of God, again, could know the presence of God in the temple. But notice the church is this priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices. Now again, that's not fake or mystical sacrifices. It's real and flesh and blood, but it's done by the power of the Spirit. Now, notice he says, acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. The things we do as the church that impart the presence of God, that are done by the presence of God, are accepted because of Jesus. Now, his point here is we're not sacrificing animals to be accepted. No, we're we're not making offerings to enter the presence of God. We are accepted by God and we act because of the presence of God and by the Spirit of God. That's what kind of priesthood we are. We're not serving Jesus here today to gain access to God. No, we already have access to God through Jesus, who is our high priest. And so as a priesthood of believers in the world, we live by the Spirit in the presence of God. But that doesn't mean we don't sacrifice. Notice in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, Paul says, I plead with you, I beg with you by the mercies of God. Notice, listen to this, to present your bodies a living sacrifice. Animals died so you could have the presence of God and worship in the presence of God and have access to God. Jesus died. So you could have the presence of God by the Spirit of God. So you could have access to God. You don't die in the presence of God. No, because of Jesus' sacrifice, you are alive with the presence of God. And you notice what that empowers you to do? Present your bodies as living sacrifices to God. As people would come to the temple, they would smell animal flesh burning from the sacrifices. They would hear little lambs screaming, squalling out. They would hear goats baying or whatever they do. They would would smell blood and flesh burning. And, and, And the people of Israel, for them, the smells of the temple were glorious. Oh, animal flesh burning. There's the smoke. Oh, that's disgusting. But for them, it meant the presence of God. There are sacrifices so we can be accepted. Offerings are being made. And there were certain offerings called fellowship offerings that were just burned on the altar to declare, yes, we can have fellowship with God. Now, here's this glorious thought. In the world, the church is now that temple. And the world looks in on the church and sometimes smells our flesh and sees our blood because we suffer to declare the gospel to them. And it's a glorious sight. Oh, the gospel is so valuable. You would offer up and sacrifice your time and your money and even your life so that I would know the gospel. You would be merciful to me. You have every right to abandon me. You have every right to judge me. 
You have every right to leave me. And yet you've forgiven me and you've given me grace. What does it take to do that even to our enemies, to love our enemies? It takes you looking into your life and saying, my life is not my life. My life is a sacrifice so others may know Jesus. And you offer it on the, offering, uh, on the altar of God. And that's what we do in the world. That's the priesthood we are in the world. We're not, we're not gaining access to God. We have access to God. And so we are free to suffer and sacrifice as a holy priesthood, as a temple set apart so others may know Jesus Christ, so they may smell and taste and hear the gospel through this holy temple. We are a priesthood that stands up and says, there's a priest who's already gone in and he has been annihilated by the wrath of God. And when you believe in him, you can know the presence of God in Jesus. In Jesus, we are this holy priesthood in the world by the Spirit of God. But notice to be this priesthood, we have to make much of the foundation. Notice verse 6. For it stands in Scripture. Now, he... Peter just packs words in. If you don't love words, find another book of the Bible to read because there are words just packed and packed. You no, know, you need to read this. There are words just packed and packed and it's so hard to get through it. For it stands. He uses that word very specifically because it means settled, solid, fixed. It's a foundational word. Stands in Scripture. And he, makes, he refers to this promise from Isaiah. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone. A stone. Now, Zion refers to God's throne. And there would have been imageries to Mount Sinai. If you remember, the people of God stood at the bottom of Mount Sinai and it quaked. And there was lightning and there was thunder and there was fire. And, and they turned to Moses and said, you've got to go up to meet with God for us. We can't do it. And it was always referred to as God's holy hill, the place where he rules and reigns. And nobody can go up to, to, to holy Mount Zion. Nobody's going to go up there in the presence of God where he rules and reigns. But here there's a promise. No, I'm going to put my cornerstone up there. I'm going to put my, my, my foundation block. The word cornerstone, it means foundation block. And it was usually in the corner of most buildings. And things were built out from around the foundation block and up from the foundation block. And Isaiah says there's a day coming where on the holy hill where nobody else can go, God's going to put a foundation block to build His kingdom. A precious jewel that will reflect His glory in the world. And whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. See, if we read the book of Isaiah, we realize Isaiah is talking about a day of judgment that's coming to Israel. And, and it's a gruesome picture. Isaiah tells us that God's going to come to Israel and he's going to raise them to the ground. He's going to bulldoze them off the face of the earth. And then he's going to take gasoline and put on top of that debris and just burn it. Until nothing's left but this little twig will begin to grow out of the ground. And that twig will grow into a massive tree that will rule the earth. And here Isaiah refers to that tree as a cornerstone. Isaiah said, I'm going to wipe it all out. And Peter says, yeah, and he's put that cornerstone in place and his name is Jesus. Because we read in the Psalms, who can ascend to this holy hill? Only him who has clean hands and a pure heart. And we know that is Jesus. 
The only one who can rule on top of Zion is Jesus. He is the cornerstone. He is the precious block that God is building His foundation on. He is fixed. And because He is the centerpiece of God's plans, He must be the centerpiece of our plans. The centerpiece that everything grows out from and that everything grows up from. When you think about your life, what is it really today that you're building your life upon? What is it? What is it that consumes your heart? As you, as you think about your plans for, for, for your family, for your job, for your career, for your school, for retirement, what is it that you're building it all upon? What is it? God's building it all on Jesus. And he will not be opposed. And he says here, if you build on anything other than Jesus, notice the words, you will not be shamed. You will be humiliated to build on anything else. Some of you here today, you're building your life on your job. Jobs are great and you should work hard and you should make money to the glory of God and you should move up in your company and you should get degrees and you should get better at what you do. But it can't be the foundation block of your life. If it is, you will be left with nothing one day. You will be given the world and lose your soul. Some of us here today, we are building our lives on our kids. Our kids are props for a PR campaign that we have for ourselves. We want to be seen as good parents. We, we want to be seen as the nice family who does everything right. And our kids are the centerpiece of all of that. And we feel in our gut that angst. What happens when they're gone? Maybe some of that angst is you have made them a foundation block and they are incapable of holding up your kingdom. And you will crumble. You will crumble one day. Oh, your kids can't be the foundation block of your life. Some of you, your own righteousness is the foundation of everything. You live your life and it's your goodness. I'm just good and I'm special. And hard things happen, bad things happen in your life. And you go, why is that happening to me? I'm such a good person. But why? why? And, and it's this self-righteousness that you're building your life upon. And one day you're going to stand before righteousness in flesh and blood. And you're going to realize that you have built your life on window panes and they're going to crack and they're going to break before the glory of God whose name is Jesus what are you building your life upon the reality is you can have a great job and you can have lots of money and you can have great degrees and your kids can have good manners and great grades and you can be known as a good person in the community and go straight to hell do you realize that all of that can be built on you all of that can be framed up around you. And there's a day coming where the sky will be ripped open and Jesus is going to tear it all down. The call is this. Build your life on Jesus. See everything through Jesus. Make Him the cornerstone of it all. And notice the promise, verse 7. Notice the promise. That's not drudgery. It's not, it's not despair. Oh no, I want it to be about me. 
No, notice what you get when you make it about Jesus. So the honor is for those of you who believe. It's the opposite of shame. No, you get security. You get fame. You share in the honor of Jesus, who is the one who will be truly honored by God. You, you get his honor. It's not a lack of honor. It's not a lack of joy. It's not a lack of stuff. No, you get everything that's Jesus' is when you believe in Jesus. When you latch your life to the cornerstone, you get the house. You get it all in Jesus. Don't make it about you. It will be washed away if it's about you. Notice, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And he quotes here from Psalm 118. And when he talks about the builders, he's talking about Israel. He's talking about the Jews who were constructing their own temple. And then the temple in flesh and blood stood before them and they rejected him. They said, we don't need this pathetic little brick. And they tossed him outside of the city. And notice even more, verse 8, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Now, offense. Now, stone of stumbling here, we think, Oh, they were just sort of walking along and they tripped. And they sort of caught themselves. That's not what happened. The word for stumbling is fall flat on your face. Fall into destruction. They tripped over the cornerstone and it killed them. It destroyed them. Why? Because he was a rock of offense. It's not just they missed him. It's not just, sometimes we think about this. We think we were expecting a king, a ruler full of glory, and God tricked us. He came in a little baby, a man who didn't have a place to lay his head, and then he was killed. God tricked us. He came in a way we didn't expect. No, the reason we don't see Jesus is because Jesus, the way he comes, offends us. We don't want that king, and yet it's the king he predicted all along. And the Jews stood up before Jesus and they said, show us a sign. Show us you can save us. And then they saw a crucified Messiah and they said, we can't build on him. Think about that. Crucified Messiah, Paul says. That is a king who comes to save and yet dies. And that makes no sense. It's like saying godly pedophile. It doesn't make any sense. It's an oxymoron. The king who saves gave up. He lost. And to the Jew, they were offended by that. To the Greek, they were looking for this emperor to come full of prestige and power. And you have this weird rabbi who's saying things like, eat my flesh, drink my blood. Ugh. We don't want, we don't want to call him a king. King of the Jews on a cross, crucified, mutilated maybe. But, but it's as if they were standing outside of their kingdom and they had the construction plans in their hand. And they were looking at this glorious building that they were constructing, getting ready to. And, and folks showed up with the foundation block. And even though they had the instruction right there to put a foundation under the house, they looked at the foundation block and said, why would we need concrete? No, get that out of here. And yet it was on the garbage heap that God was building His glorious kingdom as theirs crumbled 
Because of their self-righteousness, they couldn't see Jesus. Because of their power-hungry ambition, they couldn't see Jesus. And we wonder, why could they not see Jesus? God tricked us. But it wasn't just the Greeks. It wasn't just the Jews. It was Peter himself. Think about Peter's interaction with Jesus. Who do men say that I am? Peter says, I got it. These other morons, they don't know it. They're, They're so stupid. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Give me my wine badge. And Jesus says, you're right. And on that rock, on that rock, on that foundation block, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell will not wipe it out. Nothing will wipe out my church on that rock the truth that I am the Christ, the Son of the living God, the truth that I am the foundation, nothing's going to wipe out my church. And we think, Peter's got it. Nobody else got it but Peter. But then just a few verses later, Jesus says, I'm going to Jerusalem to suffer and die at the hands of the religious leaders, and three days later I'll be raised from the dead. And Peter says, no, 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 no. We're not going to do that, Jesus. If someone comes after you, I'm going to take up my sword and I'm going to chop their head off. And yet he missed and hit their ear. (laughs) And we look and say, Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You still don't get it, Peter. That's not my, my plan is to suffer and die. But we don't want a king who suffers and dies. Because we look on a king who suffers and dies and we say, how can that pathetic king give me what I want? I want an easy life. I want power. I want prestige. I want everything that I want. How can a crucified king give that to me? And we make Jesus into a subcontractor on our little kingdom. He's just a prop to give us what we want. And God is saying, no, this is about him. This is about my kingdom. It's all going to be about him. And it's the same way some of us read our Bibles. How can you take God's word and make it about you? And yet that's what 85% of Christianity does these days. We take our Bibles and all of a sudden it becomes to overcoming our giants. Think positive a little motivation for living a good life. No, this is God's word about his king. And the reason we don't understand how to read it is we placed ourself as the hero of the Bible. God does all things to, through, and by me. I'm at the center. No, if you will start reading your Bible with every verse saying, how is this about Jesus? How is this bringing glory to God in Jesus? Your Bible will all of a sudden open up into this glorious story that will revolutionize your life. How is this about Jesus? It's the same thing some of us do with the gospel. We've tried it all. We've tried all the pep talks. We've tried all the motivation. We got them all over our social media. These little, these little, you know, inspirational verses by Gandhi and everybody else. Well, let me try a little bit of Jesus and see if it helps. And we come to Jesus and some of us make this deal with Jesus. If I believe in you, you'll make my life easier. Will you do that, Jesus? If I believe in you, you'll give me a better marriage. If I just have faith, you'll give me more money. And what have we done? We've placed ourselves at the center of the gospel. 
Here's the scary thing. If Jesus makes everything about you, you're still in your sin. You'll never be forgiven of your sin. If he makes much of you, you'll still be in your sin. Only through this power, glorious, perfect king can we have our sins forgiven. Only in him, only if the story is about him and his glory. And, and, and if Jesus just gives you what you want, you'll never know God the way he intends. Oh, the story's not about you, it's about Jesus. The story is not about you. It's about Jesus, and yet Jesus is in plain sight, and we continue to trip over him over and over again because we want it to be about us, and we stumble to destruction. But notice, as the text continues, they stumble because they disobeyed the Word. It was the Word for them. It, it was the Word that they rejected. And notice this phrase, as they were destined to do. The Word of God came. Jesus in flesh and blood stood before His people and they rejected Him. And notice that scary phrase, they were destined to do. Destined. How does that happen? The word destined there means to cut out a path. And, and on the path leading to the cross and resurrection on the path leading to Golgotha was the disobedience of those who wanted their own kingdom and they rejected Jesus. In Acts chapter 4, verse 12, we see that Jesus was crucified, get this, according to the predetermined plan of God by the wicked hands of men. That means that God allowed the men who drove nails into the hands of Jesus, he allowed their hatred for him to bubble up so much that they would kill the Son of God. It was in his plan so that we could be forgiven of our sins. The political maneuvering in Jerusalem, all of the, the, the manipulation, the religious leaders who said, this is some blasphemer. He allowed all of that to bubble up, to cut a path to Golgotha that he would have his son die for our sins and raise him up. And he used even the sins of men to accomplish his purposes. He had to. Nice guys didn't kill Jesus. Good guys didn't kill Jesus. Wicked men who wanted power killed Jesus. And God leveraged it for his plan. He leveraged it. This means that God uses it all. There's nothing in the universe that God doesn't use for His glory, for His plan. Nothing. And on the worst day in human history, God was still in control. We look at the cross sometimes and say, God just lost control of things. It got really out of hand. No, God was winning the whole time. Winning. On the worst day in human history, God was still winning. He was still in control. And that means on your worst days, God's still in control. You look at the cross and you say, God was in control of it all. He used it all to accomplish salvation for me, forgiveness of sins for me, a resurrection for me. He used it all for me. And so on your days of weakness, when you've just had enough, you can't do anymore. This is the worst day of my life. How many times have you said that? God's still using it to win. 
And He may be winning your trust in those moments. He may be winning your prayer life to scream out to Him, God, I need you. On your worst days of suffering and rejection, You've been betrayed. You've been alienated by those you were committed to the most and they turn your back, their back on you. On those worst days where you feel the most alone, God's still winning. And He may be winning your heart to say, I'm more than enough for you. All you need is me. He's still winning. And get this, think on your worst days of sin and rebellion. And you look back and say, I lost control. And God lost control of me. Never. God knew you would do what you did on that day, that night. He knew the guilt of the next morning. And he was still winning because he wants to teach you grace and mercy. And on that day, he was probably thinking, oh, their sin and rebellion, the choices, the decisions they make, they're going to have to endure consequences and it's going to be horrible and they're going to have to do it, endure guilt. But there is a day of mercy coming and I can't wait to see them taste my mercy, taste my grace. He was winning even in your days of sin and rebellion. God was still ruling and reigning and, and he was still had a path of grace and mercy to win you too. Isn't it amazing? Oh, if you wake up tomorrow and say, I wonder if God is in control of this thing. No wonder you're miserable. No wonder. Because everything you face, from bad coffee to traffic to the annoying coworker to the email you never got and you missed the meeting to the parent meeting at school because your kid's been a twit. I mean, we, everything. That didn't happen to me. It never happens to me. <laughs> But if you move through that path going, somebody else is cutting this path but God, then you're going to be scared to death. And you're going to be anxious. But if you turn around and say, no, God is blazing a trail of victory right in front of me and I'm going to walk in and it's going to be hard, it's going to be difficult, but He's never going to leave me, He's never going to forsake me and He's always winning my heart and He's always, He's always on the throne. Oh, how glorious is that. But God even uses our rejection for His glory. That's a scary thought. In Philippians, Paul says that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess Jesus is Lord. And there will be those who are ushered off into judgment to declare the justice of God. Would you not reject God today in Christ? Oh, would that not be the case for you? C.S. Lewis said, For certainly... You will carry out God's purposes. Everybody will inevitably serve God one way or the other. However you act is the point. It makes a difference whether you serve Jesus like Judas or like John. But even God used Judas. Even God used Judas. Oh, would you not choose that path of rejection? God's going to use it for His glory. His glory is going to march right on. Oh, would you not walk in that path? Would you, would you make Jesus the centerpiece, the cornerstone? Would you understand that your plans can be suffocated? You, you make plans this week, and by the end of the week, look back, and it probably didn't happen the way you thought it would. Why? Your plans are feeble and broken and, and, and just pea gravel in the road. They're nothing. Oh, there's a foundation block 
that God is building His plans on that will never be toppled over. And He makes us these weird people. We sit around in our living rooms. We, we sit around the kitchen table. We pull up the houses and people say, Oh, that's an amazing house. That's ama- You're an amazing person. Look at all the good you do. And we say, Oh, no, 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 no. You've got to see the foundation. Let's pray.